Hi, everybody. Good morning. That's our King, Palm Sunday today. And what a great day it is. That's our King. This is why we are here to worship Jesus Christ today. He's all of these things and infinitely more. We're going to look at him today and ask who is our King. Uh, when I think of Palm Sunday, I think of celebrations. Moms, dads, uh, perhaps you remember kids coming home with branches uh, on Sunday school pageants. Maybe you as kids remember having those branches. I remember there would be palm branches handed out to our kids and they'd bring them home and I think I still remember them weeks and months later hanging out at the house. Just this is the day when kids would come up and pageant in the front and they would sing their Hosanna songs and they would recite their Bible verses. And maybe it's got memories of you. It, It brings up memories of just joy and celebration. It sure does for me. It's an exciting day. Today Jesus is our King and we're gonna be looking at Worship the King on this Palm Sunday 2021. As you look around the world with the problems and the murders and the injustice, the corruption, you probably asked, as many have, why is it the way it is? Why is the world the way it is? And it has a lot to do with what we have just seen, and it has a lot to do with the today, what we're going to be talking about. The world is in the, the shape it's in, it's in the mess that it's in, because quite simply, the world has rejected the king. This morning, as we begin this journey, we are with the king during the final week of his life as he journeys to the cross. This begins seven days. This is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. This was the beginning of the end. Now, we're in Matthew's gospel today. We'll land up, end up in chapter 21. But Matthew wrote his gospel to show simply this, that Jesus is the king. You want to know what Matthew's gospel is about? This is it. Jesus is the king. The first part of Matthew's gospel, we read the nativity, It is on the revelation of the king. That's what he's showing in the early part. It's the revelation of the king. In this last part of Matthew, he's talking about the rejection of the king. And in between, we see the life of Jesus, but Matthew devotes one quarter of his gospel to the final week of Jesus' life. Think about that. So there's an awful lot to be seen and learned here in this final week. For 20 chapters, Matthew's been writing about Jesus traveling and preaching and healing and ministering. And now for the first time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has never been in Jerusalem, according to Matthew's gospel. He hasn't written about it. Here comes Jesus entering into Jerusalem in order to die. I want you to know that this Palm Sunday was no ordinary day. These were no ordinary events. Jesus was no ordinary man. For the King of kings, God in the flesh, the Lord of lords, was coming to this city to give his life. In this hour, he was going to lay his life down. If you've been reading through the RMM reading plan, we just finished reading John chapter 17, 17-1, said Jesus' hour has come. And this was his hour, his hour riding into Jerusalem. And let's understand that this isn't just the culmination of Jesus' life, okay? It's not just his final week on earth. This is, I want you to just dial back and see the bigger picture. This is the apex of the culmination of God's eternal purposes of salvation for the world. That is what is happening here. It's as if the laser beam is focusing on these events in these days, God's rescue plan for the world. In Matthew chapter 16, 21, something interesting happened, something uh, very substantial happened. Jesus was preparing his disciples for this climactic event, the time that he and the Jewish leaders would come to a head in horrific, and it would end in his horrific death. And Matthew records three times in his gospel that Jesus was telling them about something that was going to happen. If you have your Bibles, flip to Matthew chapter 16, 21. 
This is the turning point in Matthew's gospel in, in the life of Jesus with the disciples. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And this is the, the phrase that's common to all of the three Matthew's accounts. And he says, and, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. The second one you find in Matthew chapter 17. I'm not going to read that one. But he says the same thing. And in chapter 20, so flip over if you're in 16, flip over to 20, verses 17 to 18. On the way up to Jerusalem, in the midst of this Palm Sunday processional, Jesus stops his disciples and he says this to them. He took the 12 aside, verse 17, and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And one more time, of the third time, Jesus said, and he will be raised on the third day. So this is significant. Jesus is telling his disciples what is going to happen. Here on this Palm Sunday, Jesus is coming in as the humble king, five days before his death, seven days before his resurrection. This was the week that all of history was looking forward to. It was the moment in time when that ancient promise first recorded in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the gospel that the son, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent, the enemy, the deceiver, the devil. This was the moment when Genesis 3.15 was about to be fulfilled. It was the moment when the king of glory would come to die for the sin of the world. We're going to take our Bibles and read our text, our Palm Sunday text today. Matthew chapter 21. If you have a Bible, follow along. We're going to begin at verse 1. Why don't we stand as we hear the word of the Lord this morning? Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your holy word. Speak to us now by your spirit. Teach us, Lord, and show us who you are, the worthy king. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please go ahead and take a seat. Well, this is a significant week for believers. I don't know about you, but sometimes you think, you know, we're in December, and then all of a sudden Christmas Day catches up, and it's, it comes so fast, and you go, I haven't had any time to prepare. Maybe you felt like that. Easter is like that, too. Seven days from now is Easter Sunday, and we've been going, you know, maybe you've been doing some work around the house, and all of a sudden, wow, we're at Easter already. 
Well, this is the journey for us as we approach the cross of Christ on Good Friday and the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. What do we need to see in this text? How is this going to help us as we come into Holy Week? Well, even though Jesus told his disciples three times what was about to happen, that he would be killed and that he would rise on the third day, uh, they missed it. They missed it. They were spiritually blind. In fact, in chapter 20, there's a parable that happens just before. Actually, it's not a parable. It's an, <coughs> excuse me, it's an account where Jesus heals a blind man. And there's a lesson that this man didn't see, and it was a picture saying disciples don't see either. And we need to be reminded today that there's lots of things we don't see, even though it might be right in front of us. Jesus needs to open our eyes. In John's account of the, the triumphal entry, Scripture records that the disciples completely missed what was going on. They were in the midst of all that Jesus said. They heard it. They saw what was going on, but they missed it. It was right in front of their faces. He said it three times. Imagine I said to you, go to the store and buy some milk. Go to the store and buy some milk. Like, this is obvious. I'm to go to the store and buy some milk. Three times he told them what was going to happen, but they missed it. John chapter 12, 16 records these words. His disciples did not understand these things at first. In other words, they were living through it. They didn't see it. But when Jesus was glorified, when he rose from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. There was a spiritual haze over their minds and their eyes. They missed it. The crowds missed it. The Jewish leaders missed it. And what do we need to see this morning that everybody else missed? I want us to see four things from the text. Here's the first thing. As we look at worshiping this king, who is he? Number one, he's the prophesied king. He is the prophesied king. No doubt you've been to some parades in your life. I don't know what kind of parades you've been to. Maybe it was a Santa Claus parade. Maybe you saw or were part of the Raptors 2019 NBA championship parade. I think my son Jordan was there. Well, imagine the scene before us. It's Passover week. It is a time and a place of great celebration. It's like a carnival. It's just like a big fair. Visitors have arrived from all over the place to Jerusalem. In fact, the city population swelled to about five to six times its regular population. Commentators estimate that about as many as two million people were there. You know, imagine if two million people converged on Barry. That would be a busy, very dense, noisy, busy, traffic jam place. And so this is what's happening. Jerusalem was much smaller, and two million people were there. It's Passover. Passover was this annual feast that commemorated the deliverance, God's work, his blessing, his mercy on his people five, or sorry, 1,500 years prior. And for the, the Jewish people, for these worshipers, Passover represented God's compassion in saving them and God's power over Pharaoh and his, his cruelty. And they remembered that the angel of death spared them because there was the blood of the lamb put on their doorposts. Those are the things they look back to 1,500 years before. And yearly, they made this feast, this, this journey, this trek up to Jerusalem. It was a time of great celebration. It was, it was a victory day. It was, it was a parade. It was great. But this triumphal entry would be different than any other. This Palm Sunday, this Passover celebration, this feast would be unlike any other because here, Jesus put his display the display of his glory and his authority right in front of everybody. There were Galilean pilgrims who came up with him from the Galilee about 180 miles away. And Jesus deliberately orchestrated these events, riding on a donkey, saying what he said, doing what he was doing, to show that he was the king of the Jews. 
The Jerusalem authorities wanted him dead. And the purpose of his triumphal entry into the city was to make his claim public that he was the Messiah. He was announcing to everybody there, those thousands of people through what happened was that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Perhaps you know that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled specifically in the life of Jesus. And this was one of them. This was an orchestrated event that God had planned in God's perfect time and perfect way. Jesus came into the world at the perfect time in the perfect place, Bethlehem. We've just kind of recently been through the, the birth narratives of Jesus, and there was a reason why he was born when he was in the place that he was. And in this moment on this, this Palm Sunday, God's perfect plan was, was being enacted perfectly towards the death of his son. Perhaps as you've been reading through Matthew's gospel, you would have noticed that there was a phrase, well, first of all, he quotes a lot of Old Testament He's speaking to the Jews to prove that Jesus is king. And this phrase that you see in Matthew 15 times says, to fulfill what was spoken. Matthew is telling his readers that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the prophesied Messiah. He's the prophesied king. He's the one that all of the Old Testament was looking forward to that said he would come and he has come. In fact, in the beginning of the gospel, Matthew chapter 1, if you want to flip back a few pages, Matthew 1.21 says this, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, talking about his birth. This is what the angel was saying. He will save his people from their sins. And, listen to this phrase, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus' birth, his life, his final week, his death, his resurrection, it was all prophesied happening exactly, every step, every word, Jesus obediently, perfectly fulfilling his Father's will. Well, as I read that, here's one thing that I think, that that God is the the God who keeps his promises. Sometimes we wonder if God's promises are going to come true. Sometimes we wonder, does God mean everything he says? Is God in control of every single thing? Absolutely. God is sovereign, and things are going to happen exactly as he says they will. Now, for us impatient people, We think, hmm, Lord, a little faster would be helpful. God says, don't worry. My word will come to pass. My plans will prevail. Hundreds of years before all that was spoken about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus came to pass. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24 says that. Everything written in the the Bible and the scriptures, everything that you read in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ comes true. He is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And so he and his disciples are walking up to Jerusalem from Galilee. It probably took them a couple of weeks to complete this journey. And now he comes to the Mount of Olives, which is just across Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley. And he does something. He takes his final three-kilometer trip into the city on a donkey. It was the only time Jesus had done this. This is significant. Now it's to ride into the city where he would suffer and die. He tells his disciples to go grab this this donkey and this colt. And in that moment, God proves his sovereignty. Everything was, was needed. Everything that was needed for Jesus was right there. It was all perfectly provided. It was all fulfilled by God. Matthew chapter 21, there's that phrase again. Look at verse four. This took place to fulfill. He was the prophesied king. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, 
mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. This was all planned from before the creation of the world. God had it exactly in his mind at the right moment. And this prophecy, you, you might ask yourself, well, where did this come from in the Bible? What was Jesus fulfilling? The first one is in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. Isaiah writes this, say to the daughter of Zion. You'll see that in there. Say to the daughter of Zion. Matthew's putting two prophecies together. That's the first one. The second one is found in Zechariah 9.9, where he writes, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And Jesus is the fulfillment of what Isaiah and Zechariah were predicting and prophesying would come true. Everything completely in God's hands. And I want you to know, if you're feeling like this world is out of control, if you're wondering what's going to happen with this nation or this superpower or this virus or this government, we have all those kind of questions. But I want you to know today that God has all the details of this world, of his church, of this church, of your life, of my life. All of those details are firmly in God's hands. He's got you. He's got this. He's got this world. We can trust him. That's what we see. Jesus is the promised king riding on a donkey to the place of his death, just as God said. That's my king. That's my king. He's the prophesied king. Do you know him today? The second thing is he's the humble king. Jesus is the humble king who comes riding on the donkey. My dad told me a story when I was a little boy. My dad told me a story that when he was a little boy, in I think it was October of 1957, Queen Elizabeth made her first trip as a monarch to Ottawa. As you can imagine, the visit of a queen, the, the visit of royalty is a, is a big deal, particularly to Ottawa. And so there was this big, you know, motorcade, there was pomp, there was ceremony, the, the city swelled with visitors, thousands of cheering, clapping, waving subjects, wel welcoming Her Majesty. And kings, when they would ride into town, they would often do so on a war horse, they would ride in with their army, their soldiers arrayed in all their battle gear with their shields and their swords, demonstrating their might and their power, the authority of this leader. Is that how Jesus rode into Jerusalem? Is that how the king came in? No. He came in with people waving palm branches, that, that was with their swords. He came not riding on a, on a war horse of, of military might, but he came riding on a donkey humble. You see, the donkey represented peace. This king was coming for peace, not for war. He was coming not to overthrow, but to lay his life down. And Matthew shows that Jesus' mission was to suffer, not to overthrow by force. Look at verse 5. Behold, your king is coming, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If you remember from our series recently in Colossians, we talked about that word meek. Jesus came in meekly. Now that word humble that Matthew uses is the same word as meek. Humility is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness, but it is power under control. It's the godly use of strength. And so here's Jesus. He controls all the armies of the world, but yet he comes humbly. His mission was different. We saw Jesus in Colossians as the Lord of all, the creator, the supreme ruler, humble and meek, all power and strength under his control. Why? For our salvation. 
His coming in was an act of mercy, not one of justice and war. He wasn't coming to take all the bad guys down. He was coming to lay his life down. Well, this is a problem because many people expected a Messiah who was going to come and overthrow the government. They figured their problems were all around them, all on the outside. They figured if we can just take down the government, if we can just overthrow the Romans, that's our problem. We need to get rid of the Romans. But actually, that wasn't the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem was their own sin. It was their own wickedness. And they missed what Jesus had come to do. They missed that they needed a cleansing. They needed a cleansing of the blood of Jesus that would flow from the cross. Jesus does not come to fulfill our agendas, brothers and sisters. He comes on his own terms. He doesn't come to rescue us from political oppression, but he comes to show the love of the Father by seeking and saving the lost. Jesus is not our ticket out of societal turmoil. He is the rescue from the wrath of God. The other thing we need to notice from Zechariah's prophecy is that the peace that he brought, the salvation that he brought, wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for for them and for there. It was for us. Zechariah 9.10, the very next verse says this. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In fact, that's part of the motto of Canada. Jesus speaks peace to the nations, and that is us. This is the work of God that he accomplished for people everywhere. That's for you and for me. On that day, he was announcing that I'm come to be the savior of the world for Albanians and those in Kazakhstan and those in Dubai and the UAE, for those who live in New Brunswick, for those who are in Barrie. He's the savior of people everywhere. This is what he did. This is the good news of the gospel. Because of what he did on the cross through his shed blood, we are reconciled to God and to one another. The humble king came into the world how? Think about the little baby, right? He came in unnoticed. He came in poor. He came in wrapped in claws. And how's he going to leave? He's going to leave humbled, rejected, and crucified. But I want to tell you, that's not the end of the story. See, this this isn't a defeated savior. He's a humble savior. He's a meek savior, but he's not a defeated savior. The same humble king who came on a donkey came into this world unnoticed, left the world, rejected. Is that how it's going to end? Is that the end of the story? That's not the end of the story. Next week, there's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Here's the end of the story. The same humble king, how's he going to return? He's going to return on a white horse. He's going to return as the king of kings and the lord of lords, crowned with many crowns, surrounded by followers, surrounded by powerful armies of heaven who are going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming to save us and to bring us home. And he's coming to pour his wrath, his wrath unleashed against all who reject him. A joyful time for the believers and a very, very solemn and sobering time for those who don't know Christ. Where do we find this in the Bible? Revelation chapter 19. John writes this, of this victorious, conquering king coming. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in true righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's my king. That's my king. He's the humble king. Do you know him today? Here's the third thing. He's the saving king. 
He's the saving king. Look at verse six. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This crowd that gathered, just picture it in your mind's eye, thousands upon thousands. People are ahead of him, people are behind him, people are all beside him. They're taking their coats off and they're putting it on the road. They're cutting down branches. Some are waving them, some are putting it on. They've paved a highway for him, a highway of honor for this king. This is what it was. And just imagine that scene 64 years ago in Ottawa when the queen came to town. Quite a spectacle. It was loud, it was a celebration. And here there was a party, a celebration for the coming of the king. And here's what they were shouting. Look at verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. If you think of Palm Sunday, the first thing you probably think of is branches. The second thing you probably think of is the word Hosanna. It's a word that we talk about usually once or twice a year, and here it is. It was a very important word. It was the word of of prayer. It was the word of praise. Hosanna is a Greek form of a Hebrew word which is translated save us or save now. It was a cry for God to rescue his people. And it's only found one place in the Bible in Psalm 118. So here were these pilgrims, these worshipers, coming up to Jerusalem. And guess what their song was? Their song, their marching song, their victory song was Psalm 118, the very place where Hosanna was being used. That's why they were singing what they said. That's why they were singing the song, because it was what they did during Passover. Originally, this was a cry of desperation, almost like your, you know, think back to the Exodus. There's a a wall of water on one side, Pharaoh's army is approaching, and you're just getting squished. You can't go forward, you're going to drown. You can't go forward because you're going to get slaughtered. So what do you do? You cry, you say, Hosanna! God, you got to save us. Think of maybe being pushed into the deep end of a pool. I don't know if there's any non-swimmers in the room, but if you get pushed into the deep end of the pool and you don't swim... You manage to come back up, grab a breath of air, and at the top of your lungs, you're going to be screaming to anybody that's on that deck to throw you something or to rescue you, to save you, because you're going down if someone doesn't help you. That was the idea originally for Hosanna. Save me! But over the years, in Jewish worship, this desperate plea, this cry for rescue, turned and was transformed not from a, a, a plea for rescue, but a word of praise for salvation. In other words, it's just the opposite side of the coin. So imagine I'm in the water and I'm drowning and I'm I'm yelling out and Mark Mark hears me and he comes and he reaches over and he grabs me. I'm also going to say Hosanna. In other words, my lifeguard has come. He's rescued me from drowning. Thank you, Mark. Hosanna. This prayer, this plea, this cry, desperately to be saved, turned into this This note of praise. Salvation has come. My my rescuer is here. Salvation has come. And it was all pointed to Jesus. This is what it means. Jesus is our our Savior. He's our rescue. And so the fact that these people were singing Psalm 118 was, was not surprising because this was the song they always sang every year. But what was surprising is that this song was landing on this day on the person of Jesus Christ. They'd been singing about their king. And who was the king Psalm 118 is talking about? It's King David. 
The celebration of the song was in, in singing of the praise of King David, our rescuer. King David is our hero. King David, save us. King David, you're good. King David, you're great. Woo, we love King David, yeah. But King David was long dead, and there was no more King David. So what were these people on this Palm Sunday talking about? Well, they were talking about a greater King David, a better King David, the long-awaited son of God who was going to be the son of that king. They were waiting for the coming king, and that day had come on that Palm Sunday. It was Jesus. He was the son of David, the greater David. And this crowd was overjoyed. They thought, this is it, everything we've been waiting for, our day of rescue's come. But they were rejoicing for the wrong reasons, or at least they didn't see everything the way they should. And we can pursue Jesus for the wrong reasons. We can love Jesus or come to church or pray because of what we want him to do for us. This is kind of what the crowd was doing. They wanted Jesus on their own terms. We want Jesus on our own terms, but he doesn't work that way. Following Jesus as a believer is not like a big Pepsi machine where you put in your money, decide what you want, push the button, and out comes your drink. Jesus is not a big pop machine a genie that we get our wishes from. He's the king of the universe. And for these worshipers on that day, they saw him as the conquering savior. Yep, they were ready to have a big revolt, but they didn't see him as the atoning sacrifice. It didn't make sense to them. Later that week, their hero, their greater King David, would where would he be? He'd be on a cross, uh, brutally tortured, humiliated, pierced, rejected, dead. And they didn't, they didn't put that and that together. No one did. Even though John the Baptist pointed to them early on in John's ministry at the start of Jesus' ministry, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed to Jesus and said, that's him. That's the one you've been waiting for. People still didn't see and when Zechariah in chapter 9 begins his prophecy, he has these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But look at your Bibles. Look at your Bibles. Guess what? That word's not there. Matthew doesn't quote that part of Zechariah's prophecy. He doesn't quote that. He takes that out. Why? Because while all this rejoicing is going on, while there's this carnival party-like celebration, and rightly so, because the king has come, there's something different going on. How does Jesus come into the city? What is Jesus doing when everybody else at the top of their lungs is proclaiming his praise? Jesus is weeping. Jesus wept for this people had rejected him. He came to his own and his own received him not. John 1.11. And Jesus knew that in just five short days, he would fully and finally be rejected on Good Friday. The peace that he offered, the salvation that he came to bring, the hope, the deliverance was fully rejected. Where do we find that? In Luke chapter 19. This is what it says. And when he drew near and saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, this is Palm Sunday. This is Luke's account of Palm Sunday. It says this, he wept over it. And if, if this was a movie, this is a movie, you'd have wide camera angles and there would be, you'd see people rejoicing, 
by the dozens and the hundreds and the thousands. It would be noisy, it would be a gong show, it would be beautiful, it would be wonderful. Probably a cinematographer's dream to capture that much joy. But then the camera would zoom in on the eyes of the Savior on this donkey, and you would see tears rolling down his face. The heart of Jesus broken. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus came not to overthrow the Romans. He came to bring peace with God. I heard a story once of a lady who was telling me about raising her kids. And uh, she had ended up having three boys. Her oldest boy's name was Jason. And you know how kids learn their first word, and you know whether it's mama or dada or whatever happens to be. <laughs> um, so you, you, know, you get a few words, you get build up a vocabulary, and eventually that you string your words together and you can say, you know, bottle, mama bottle, or whatever it happens to be. Well, this, this boy who strung his first set of words together put a phrase together that was to uh, be prophetic, prophesying the next 17 years of his life. Moms, you're gonna love this one. That young boy, young Jason, his first sentence to his mom was, you're not the boss of me. Sounds like a bit of a spanking is coming, huh? You're not the boss of me was the first sentence that this young Jason said to the face of his mom. And for the next 17 years, he lived to prove exactly what he was saying. He lived by his own rules. He caused a lot of grief to his family. He was kicked out of school, got in lots and lots of trouble. I'm happy to say that late in his teen years, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. This is exactly what the world said to Jesus. Luke chapter 19, Jesus told a a parable just before the triumphal entry. This is what Jesus said in this parable. Jesus is, is telling the authorities this story. He said, but his subjects hated him, talking about himself, and sent a delegation after him saying this, we don't want this man to rule over us. Jesus was saying to the Jewish leaders, to the Jewish nation, this is what you said. You're not the boss of me, Jesus. You can't tell us what to do. And this, if you want to know what's wrong with the world, why the world is in the mess that it's in, why the world is screwed up, why we're, we're messed up, why relationships are messed up, it's because we say, Jesus, you're not the boss of me. We don't want your authority over our lives. And so we, we live this out when we live in pride, when we live in rebellion, when we say, God, I'm my own boss. I'm going to choose sin over you. I'm going to choose my way over your way. We don't say it maybe in quite those terms, but when we decide that we're going to run our own life, when we're going to be the captain of our own soul, we say, Jesus, you're not the boss of me. And so Jesus came to die for lawbreakers, thieves, rebels, murderers, sinners, people just like us. This was his rescue plan. Nobody understood his mission. This was the work that was going to be accomplished in the hearts of people through his death on the cross. This was salvation through substitution. He was going to say, Father, this world is guilty of sin, of judgment, and death. They deserve to die on the cross, but I will stand in their place. In the Old Testament, in the Exodus, a lamb had to be slaughtered for the people to be saved. Jesus said, I am that lamb. I'm the substitute. 
I'm the way to life. The people did not understand the significance of their sin, and they did not understand the necessity of the cross. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ today to save you from sin, from hell, and from death? That's my king. That's what he does. He's the saving king. Do you know him? Here's the final thing that we need to see. He's the worthy king. He's the worthy king. This king of glory, this prophesied king, this humble king, this saving king. Let's ask ourselves the question as we apply it. What does he want from us? What does he want from us? What does this king deserve? Simply, if I could put it in one word, it would be this. Worship. What does the king want? What does the king deserve? Worship. And, and I don't just mean singing a song. I mean worship in all that that means in the fullest sense of the word because he is the worthy king. He is God. What does he deserve? He deserves loyalty. He deserves honor. He deserves allegiance. He deserves obedience from all of us that he has created, from all of us that he has redeemed. And I hear in my mind the great commandment that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. This is what this king this worthy king deserves all of our worship. These people who are in the midst of that Palm Sunday gathering, enjoying all of the celebration, who doesn't love, love to be part of a great parade? They saw part of it, but they sure didn't see most of it. But there's one thing we can learn from this celebration. And I was amazed when I saw it in my study. Their praise and their rejoicing and all their exuberance and this uncorked, just mob of people that were giving Jesus all the glory, singing their hosannas. This was a foreshadow of, of what was going to come. You say, well, what was, what was it foreshadowing? When is this event? We find it in Revelation chapter 7. This is important. Open your Bibles and turn to Revelation 7, 9 to 10. I want you to see this. John writes, after this I looked, and a great multitude that no one could number, so there's lots and lots and lots of people there again. Where are they from? From every nation, from all the tribes and all the peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. <laughs> Check this out. What do they have in their hands? They've got palm branches in their hand. Guess what? This is pointing back to Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday's pointing forward to this moment. They have palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is king language, God who sits on the throne. This is sacrifice language to the Lamb. This is all of the worshipers, all of the nations. This is Zechariah language. This is all the nations Revelation chapter 7 is pointing backward and saying, this is the moment that we're looking forward to when we gather before the Lamb with our palm branches, with our songs of salvation in our hearts. Hosanna on our lips. This is what's coming. You are in that picture. You're there. If you love Jesus, if you know Jesus, that is your future event. I'm going to be there. If you know Christ, you're going to be there in that moment before the King 
And so what did the people's response look like? They, their honor of the king, what did it look like? Well, first of all, in an expression of subjection to them, they, they took off their cloaks and they, they put them on the ground. They laid their branches and they laid their clothes. Maybe it was their only cloak. Maybe it was their only coat. Maybe they had a blanket or a shawl. They laid it and they just paved the road for Jesus to ride on saying, you're the king. And in that expression, it was saying, I'm giving you everything I have. I'm laying it before you. I'm laying it all down in surrender. They recognized the worth of this king, gladly giving up all that they had for him and his honor. And that reminds me of Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercy, what are we to do? We're to lay down our life as a living sacrifice, all that we are before him. That's what the king deserves. That's what a response of worship looks like. And secondly, in their desire to praise him, they're waving their branches because those waving branches were a celebration of victory. They were praising God for the victory. They were praising this king for the victory. And you've seen the power of the king. You've seen what God has done in your life. And so with your hands and your hearts and your songs lifted up, this is what the king deserves. The response of the, the king to the king is whenever we get to sing, whenever we come together, and boy, oh boy, next week, I want, I want to hear you singing. I want the noise-o-meter to, like, break. If it normally goes this far, we want to bury the needle on, on Easter Sunday. This is the praise that's lifted up, this exuberance. And the third thing is an expression in recognition of this king's authority. They, they shouted to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, lifting up the name of Jesus, the name above every name. And so what is the rightful response of worship to this king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Here's the first thing. What does he deserve? He deserves unconditional surrender. And I remember as a, as a young pastor, my, my senior pastor told me, he said, you know, Jody, the most important thing for you to do in your life is to just imagine your life is like a check. Sign the bottom and hand it to the Lord. Say, Lord, everything I have is yours. Everything I am is yours. Give him your life. Give him everything. Give him your future and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Take me. And this is what the rightful response of, of worship to this king looks like. First of all, it's unconditional surrender. Everything I am, self dethroned, Christ enthroned. Saying, self, you're not going to rule anymore. Self, you're not in charge. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of my life. He is the king of my heart. That's the first thing. The next response, so sure, I think we need to see here today is this. First one, unconditional surrender. The second one is an unshakable allegiance. Unshakable allegiance. Our obedience. Our priority being his kingdom. Not living for self. Not living for me, my, and mine. But living for the kingdom of God. Our life's ambition for his glory. Everything that you are poured out to this end to live for the glory of God. Complete obedience and unshakable allegiance to the one and true king. It's not us, it's him. And the third thing is this, an unbridled praise. This is what he deserves. This is our response, unbridled praise. Your life speaking to the glory of God. Your words, your lips speaking to the glory of God. When you can speak of him, when you can pray to him, when you can praise him, when you can demonstrate that he is a worthy king, that he means everything to you, 
this unbridled praise and when we come together to make a joyful noise, to sing it, to play it, to lift it in unceasing worship. That's my king. He is the worthy king. Do you know him today? Do you know him? One conclusion, I just want to say this. The triumphal entry Palm Sunday is just is one of contrasts. It's the contrast of the highest king who came to the lowest place. It's the contrast of great joy and great sorrow in the heart of Jesus. It's the contrast of people who thought they could see but couldn't see. And it's the contrast of this all-powerful king who came not to conquer by force, but by his own sacrifice and mercy. Our text ends with these words, verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, here we go. The whole city was stirred up. That word in the Greek is seismic. In other words, the whole city was shaking. There was this excitement, there was this energy about what was happening and and everybody seismically, the ground was shaking, the noise was just shaking the place, saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. People said, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who do you say he is? Is he just a good man? Is he just a good teacher? Is he Pepsi machine that gives you what you want when you put the right amount of money in? Who is he? Some people don't know Jesus, and uh, South Shore, that's our mission. They've never heard, and we need to tell them. Some people have seen Jesus maybe as a good teacher, maybe a good luck charm, but never understood him as the savior of the world. Some people have seen the power of Jesus. They know he's real. Maybe even people here today, you've seen that, but you've never fully surrendered your life to him. But some people have seen the king and gladly received him and surrendered, knowing that his blood has cleansed you from sin and has purchased you for eternal life. You've experienced his peace and you've experienced his joy. And your heart's desire is to live for him. Your your goal, your aim is in all that you do and say and think is to, to glorify him. Who is this king? Who is Jesus today to you? On this Palm Sunday, do you know him? Do you love him? He is the prophesied king. He's the humble king. He's the saving king. And Sashor, he is the worthy king, worthy of all worship and glory and honor. And so today, I charge you, I, I ask you, I plead with you, bow your knee to him. And with all that you are, give him all the glory and all the honor that he deserves. This is Jesus. He is the king. Worship this king. Let's pray. Lord, it is not hard for us to imagine us being in that place among those worshipers on that that day. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the perspective we have that they couldn't see. They didn't have it. They couldn't see it, but we do. 
And Lord, you deserve all the glory. We've already sung that this morning. You deserve the highest praise. You are the king, the king of salvation, the king of mercy, the king of the sufferers, the king who brings grace, the king of glory. Lord, help us today to to give you all the glory that you deserve as we approach Friday and Sunday. Lord, help us to give you the worship that you deserve. Help us now, we pray. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. All God's people said, amen.